The Carter Center late this afternoon released a statement saying that Jimmy Carter would like to spend what time he has left at home with his family, and he's going to be receiving hospice treatment and has the full support of his medical team. The 98-year-old is the country's oldest living president in history, but he's had a series of recent health problems, beginning with a brain cancer diagnosis in 2015. I must say, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, I have never been interviewed by such kind people. Jan Williams lives in Plains, Georgia, and has been talking to a lot of media since the announcement. Uh, They all knew that he is my very good friend and that I'm talking about my friend as well as a former president of the United States, where they're just really kind of wanting some information about our former president. But I told them that they came too early. I said, you might as well go back home and we'll let you know when you need to come back. (laughs) They said, so you don't think it's going to be right away? And I said, no, I really don't. I think y'all are rushing. I really do. (laughs) And so far, I've been correct. I'm excited about that. I'm Umbreen Khan, and this week on Inspired by Interfaith Voices, we're taking a closer look at President Jimmy Carter's faith, how it shaped his personal life, and the politics that brought him into the Oval Office and sent him home. There's all sorts of paradox here, all sorts of irony. Uh, That is to say, an evangelical president, uh, born-again Southern Baptist Sunday school teacher, uh, is elected president in 1976 with the help of evangelical voters who then turned dramatically and radically against him four years later. Randall Balmer is a religion historian at Dartmouth University and the author of Redeemer. And later in the program, he shares insights on the political and historical forces that shaped Jimmy Carter's life. But first, my conversation with Jan Williams. She's been a close family friend for more than 50 years and a witness to Carter presidential history and controversy. If you call Maranatha Baptist Church's phone, it's her voice you'll hear on the recording. Thank you for calling the Maranatha Baptist Church. If you will please... She's been part of the church since it began out of a controversy sparked by an event that took place on the Sunday before Election Day in 1976. There was a gentleman by the name of Reverend C.B. King. He was out of Albany, Georgia. He was a preacher, and uh, he had been listening to President Carter talk about some of his books about his faith. I heard him talk about being a born-again Christian and having to explain to the world what did that really mean. And uh, he had heard rumors that the churches in Plains worshipped separately by color. So he contacted the pastor of Plains Baptist and told him that on a particular Sunday that he was going to come and join the church. So the pastor told our deacons and the deacons met and uh, we had a lot of ugly church meetings. We really did about how we're going to handle this one man. He's trying to cause us trouble. And, you know, sometimes if you just kind of, uh, I don't say ignore it, but maybe just go along with it. You know, he could have had to come before a a membership board. He was already a pastor of a church. So why did he want to join Plains Baptist? And we all knew he was coming just to show everybody that uh, Jimmy Carter went to a church that would not let an African-American join. And so on the Sunday that Reverend King was to come, we only had Sunday school that Sunday and no worship service. 
And when Reverend King arrived, he was met on the front steps of the church and he was told that he could not come in. He could not join because we were not having a church service that day. In 1965, Plains Baptist Church had passed a controversial resolution banning Black members from joining or participating in services. President Carter at the time was a deacon in the church and openly and adamantly opposed to the ban. And it wasn't until after his election that it was rescinded. But the damage had been done. The church community was deeply divided. There were 29 people who pulled out of Plains Baptist, and they just walked away. Many Sunday school teachers, uh, music leaders, um, just some of the very best members of the church just walked away and began to talk about what are we going to do? Well, we did a lot of crying and a lot of praying. And so after some meetings, we made arrangements with the Lutheran church that was not being used, and they allowed us to use their church, and we started having our uh, church services there. We talked about raising money, and uh, finally we decided, yes, we could start a new church, and we were able to received some land from one of the members of our church, was so kind to give us some acreage and and a beautiful pecan orchard and right down the road from Plains Baptist. And that's where our church is located now. Meanwhile, in Washington, D.C., President Carter began attending First Baptist Church. And we should note, at the time, it was welcoming members of all races and ethnicities. He did not make a decision about where he's going to go to church until the first Sunday after he was no longer the president in 1981, they came uh, out to Maranatha and asked if their membership could be moved to Maranatha. Because of the uh, disturbance at Plains Baptist about having blacks to be able to come into the church at Maranatha, we had assured everyone that they were more than welcome to come and worship. And so in the back of his mind, He knew he wanted to teach some more uh, Sunday school lessons. He started teaching Sunday school at Maranatha. And to begin with, we might have five or ten visitors. And by the time we finished with his teaching career, we had had some Sundays anywhere from 600 to 800 people a Sunday come to hear him teach. There were many times on Sunday morning we had more people at Maranatha than lived in Plains. (laughs) Which presented a big problem because our sanctuary could only hold about 300 people. My husband, George, would have to go up on Saturdays and greet the people. My husband was the first person they usually met before uh, their Sunday morning experience. And he was a wonderful ambassador for what kind of people go to Barrett. He would give them a number, which was for everyone in their vehicle. And then um, they would have to spend the night in our parking lot in their car. So people learned how to brush their teeth with a bottle of water. Uh, some people, you know, <laughs> wore their casual clothes and then redressed for church on Sunday morning. And uh, really and truly, if your number was higher than about 60, you probably would not fit in the classroom and see him face to face. So... Uh, What was kind of exciting was that we had all those big crowds and it was so wonderful because we met people who had never been to church before. We met people who were looking to find out 
maybe I do need a church and maybe God is calling me to, to start going to church. So we felt as if that we were a missionary field, that we didn't have to leave planes. They came to us. So we did our very, very best to be a good witness to the people who came. I'm curious, like how he supported leadership in your church when he was an active member. Yes, ma'am. Well, <laughs> he very much was for having lady deacons in our church. So therefore, he disagreed with what the Southern Baptist Convention was saying the rules were. So, you know, he removed himself from being a supporter of the Southern Baptist Convention. And none of the money that he gave our church went to the Southern Baptist Convention. We did not use Southern Baptist literature. Uh, he loved uh, on Sunday mornings after he came in and greeted everybody before he started his Sunday school lesson, he would ask, if you are a pastor or a missionary, to raise your hand and tell what denomination and where you were serving or had served. I can assure you 100%, if a woman raised her hand, and after he greeted all the ministers and missionaries, he called on a woman to pray. Mm. That, you know, he just showed everybody in a very kind and simple way that God doesn't care whether you're male or female. He just wants you to know that he's the higher power and that you can pray to him and how wonderful it is. We as Christians, we don't have to go through somebody else to pray to him. And uh, so he did bring a lot of new ideas into our church. And it's kind of like anything else. If you like that idea, that's great. If you didn't, then you probably moved on. But, you know, we didn't have a, a problem with it in our church. We also ordained a, a lady minister in our church who's her husband was our minister at that time, and we had no problem with that. And uh, I'll be the first to say, if it wasn't for the women in a church, it would probably fall apart mm. because we are the glue that keeps it together. I have heard I've heard President Carter say something to that effect, and I've also heard many women talk about the church mothers about <laughs> you know yes, hold, holding and the house just, of worship it's together. Just the truth. It's just the truth now. My husband served as a deacon at Maranatha, and President Carter was constantly saying, Jan, I would like for you to put your name up for election. And I said, Mr. Jimmy, my husband is the deacon. I'm just being a good deacon's wife. And that's how I left it. But it sounds like he was encouraging you to not feel like if that's something you wanted. It did. It did. Tell me about President Carter's relationship with Reverend Ted Loudon. A friend of ours, who was not even a member of our church, didn't have a pastor at that time. So he asked, could he invite this gentleman to come and preach at our church? And we said, sure. Uh, you know, we left another church because of uh, <laughs> a black man. But, you know, we welcomed a black man into our church who later became our preacher. And so he preached that Sunday, and Mr. Jimmy called him up while he was on his way back home and said, told him how much he enjoyed his message today, and would he consider becoming our pastor? Mm. And that's how it all came about. And uh, he was truly a man who could preach the Bible and just had never hardly used any notes. It all came from his heart. A prayer was just marvelous. 
and a wonderful friend and still is a wonderful friend to many of us in the church, but he certainly is President Carter's pastor. Mm. The question of race and the question of how he's evolved, because I, I was reading Randall Bomber's book and, and read that, you know, as a school board member in the 1950s, he struggled with balancing the message that he was hearing from his mom with the message he was hearing from his dad. Um, that they, <laughs> Did I yes, put that? that? Did I did that, I did I capture that? that? Down, you can mark that down as being a very true statement. Yes, ma'am. Did I capture that? Because my understanding is his mom, Lillian, was just outspoken. Yes, ma'am. I used to be her secretary before he won the first election when she started getting a lot of mail. Oh, so you and know her with, really well. <laughs> oh, yes, ma'am. And with my dealings of her, I just was amazed that she was so ahead of the world we were living in. Because back when she came up, most women stayed at home, kept the house, had the babies. You know, she went to college, became a nurse. And was working in the hospital when she went into labor. And the doctor said, We'll just let you have the baby here in the hospital. You know, uh, she uh, didn't mind having a drink in the afternoon about five o'clock. You know, she had some choice words for some of her friends that she considered her best friends. They were not words that probably a lady should be calling another lady, but she did. And it was all a joke, you know, but she uh, and then when she wanted to go to um, India, and served the people over there and at a late age in life. And and the family found out that they would be sending her food because they saw how small she was getting. And what was happening was that she was giving the food to the people in India, and she wasn't eating it herself. But she put others ahead. And when somebody got in touch with her about needing some help, she was not concerned about whether they were black or white. She went to help them. She'd spend the night in their house if she needed to, you know. And uh, it was uh, not felt the same way with Mr. Earl, but they worked it out. And uh, but I I have told a lot of young people, uh, Mr. Jimmy is such a great person to look at, but his mother really and truly showed him that it's all about serving others and not about what color their skin is. Coming back to Jim Crow South, you know, in the 1950s, leaving the Navy, but the influence of his mother on him and the influence of her quiet acts of service, its that's a legacy that you're just describing, right? Yes. Miss Lillian lived 30 years after Mr. Earl died. So that's when she you know, really made a stand. And, and of course, she loved campaigning for him and she loved the White House. One of the favorite questions that somebody asked her was, uh, has Jimmy Carter ever told a lie? You know, they they could not find any dirt on Jimmy. No, no affairs, no wild parties, you know, no ugly language. And so uh, one day is that when I was working with her over at our home, the reporter came to the door and she had already told me about how long she wanted to talk to the reporter and all this kind of stuff. So I go to the door and, and answer the door and introduce myself and bring the reporter in and introduce the person to Miss Lillian. And it was not a good beginning because the reporter said immediately, has Jimmy Carter ever told a lie? 
How did she respond to that? Were I'm, you? I'm going. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you. And so she kind of looked at the reporter and said, "Do you remember when you came in just a few moments ago?" And I mean, she just made it be a long little conversation from her side. And uh, Jan introduced me to you, and I told you how great it was to have you come in to interview me this afternoon. And oh, the reporter was just eating it up. And uh, she said, well, guess what? That's a fine example of a white lie. So we're through with the interview, and Jan will show you it back out the door. Oh, that was it. That was the interview? No more interview. No, ma'am. You just don't come barging into somebody's house and want to dig up, you know, what was she going to say, I wonder, you know. She sounds like she was just sharp and not going to be, yes, not going to be manipulated. No, ma'am, because when we got ready to go into the White House after the inaugural parade, Mr. Jimmy had said to all of us that were there with him that we were not going to do any more interviews, say nothing, go in the house. We had to change clothes to get ready for a reception. And so as we were walking down the sidewalk, one of the reporters stuck a microphone up in her face that had one of those fuzzy things over the end so the wind, you know, wouldn't affect it. And he looked at her and he said, aren't you proud of your son today? And we stopped and we she looked him in the face and she said, which son are you referring to? I had no children at that time. And that has stuck with me that your children, you love them equally. She loved all of her children. She did. Wow. What amazing memories you have and how blessed we are that we were able to talk with you and to hear them. And you just you just brought her back to life. I'm just I'm envisioning this reporter standing with their fuzzy mic. <laughs> trying you know to get, how they do, don't you? <laughs> I do. I'm looking at a fuzzy top on a reporting mic right now as I talk to you. <laughs> well, let me ask you this. Is there any chance you may come to Plains? I would love to come to Plains, Georgia. Are you inviting yes, me? Are you inviting uh, me? <laughs> I am so much inviting you. I wish you could come down so you and I could just sit down and talk face to face. My husband's been sitting here listening to me. And he smiled several times through our interview because oh. it, you have you have allowed me to give, I hope, an interview that will touch somebody else's life. Well, you've absolutely touched mine. And I have to share with you, you you're friends with the Carter family and with the former president. Ever since the news came out, I have um, been remembering the one time I, I had an opportunity to talk to President Carter. I was 19 years old. Uh, this is more than 30 years ago. It was actually on this day, 32 years wow. ago. Wow. He was getting ready to speak at Washington University. When you get involved in something like the projects that I've described to you, it is not a sacrifice. It's not something that interferes with your life's work. It stretches your mind. It stretches your heart. It lets you know I am a human being who cares about others. And the things that I do are expanding what I know about God's world and what I know about myself. I had just been elected to a student advocacy organization, and so I, I was invited to come into the green room to meet him. Oh, my goodness. I was so nervous. And I went back to my journal to look at what I wrote because I journal every day, and I knew that was going to be in there. And it was. And 
I was just, I was terrified. I couldn't, after saying hello, I couldn't say anything. And what I wrote down and what I remember is that he just smiled, looked at my name tag, saw that I was a student at Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee. He knew of the school and just started asking me questions about me, you know, and was so disarming. And then all of a sudden I started breathing again. (laughs) (laughs) That's very interesting that you've told me your story, which I truly, truly love because everything that Jimmy Carter has ever done uh, has not been about him. It's been about the person in front of him. And he has said so many times in his Sunday school lessons we can make this world be a better place if we'll all just be kind to the person in front of us. Mm. And because we would all reach at least one person every day that might just need a smile, a hug, uh, a prayer, or maybe they need a little more, and maybe we might be able to help them with their need. But he is just such a kind man to be able to live in the world we have today to be able to show others what it's really like to be a Christian. What a wonderful example he's been to my husband and I and our children. Our grandchildren talk about him just like, you know, uh, they've known him all their life because we talk about him as our friend. And uh, my husband and I have truly been blessed to have been able to help in the ways that we try to help through all of this, and to learn from his example, to put forth in our example in our life. You bring me back to the speech he gave shortly after I met him. He said that. That was his message. As he is surrounded by friends and family, and as the nation is preparing to say goodbye, in so many ways, what's happening right now is this living, you know, these living memories, these Um, tributes. I've been reading so much more now about President Carter in the last week about how um, prophetic some of his ideas were. Oh, yes, ma'am. But he's just such an example of a man who came from little or nothing to live in the big White House, which was just (laughs) unbelievable because when he told me he's running for the presidency, I just kind of looked at him like, okay, wonder how this is going to go over, you know. <laughs> and <laughs> and I must say, the stories that the media has put out there, I think has been a comfort to the people of Plains. I really do. You know, and sometimes just sharing is a great way to prepare you for something that you know lies in the future. Is there any chance you may come to Plains? I would love to come to Plains, Georgia. Are you inviting me? Are you inviting me? (laughs) I am so much inviting you. I wish you could come down so you and I could just sit down and talk face to face. My husband's been sitting here listening to me and he smiled several times through our interview because you have you have allowed me to give, I hope, an interview that will touch somebody else's life. Well, you've absolutely touched mine. And as I said, this is the day 32 years ago that I met. Mr. Jimmy, and I was frozen like a deer standing in front of him, unable to get a word out. And he just, those blue eyes, he just smiled. He just smiled at me. Yes, ma'am. Another word that we have not used with him is the word peace. He does not like for there to be disagreements or 
hurt feelings or anything like that. He is totally about being at peace with yourself, your fellow man, and of course, being at peace with where your final days will take you. Mm. I uh, hope that we can meet in person and I will stay in touch. Thank you so much for your time. And I thank you so much for giving me a call back. Absolutely. Take good care. Bye-bye. Jan Williams lives in Plains, Georgia with her husband, George Williams, who serves as a deacon of Maranatha Baptist Church. I spoke to her by phone on February 28th and at the time of our conversation, President Carter was receiving hospice care at home. Williams is a close friend of the Carter family. She served as a church volunteer and elder, regularly supporting the activities and events at Maranatha Baptist Church since its founding after a split with Plains Baptist over the issue of integration. Over the course of our conversation, there was a consistent theme. President Carter's character and actions are rooted in his ever-evolving understanding of faith. Coming up after the break, we take a closer look at how that personal faith played out in our politics with religion historian Randall Bomber. He's the author of a 2014 religious biography of Jimmy Carter that examines how the born-again president's rise and fall coincides with the eclipse of Christian progressivism and the emergence of the religious right. Stay with us. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. <music> 